Well, good morning. Happy Easter to you all. Thank you for being here this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into uh, this new and beautiful space uh, that we're so glad to be in and so glad that uh, you've chosen to spend some of your Easter day with us. And if we've never had the opportunity to meet, my name is Jamie. It's my great joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Uh, and it's my joy to be able to open up the scriptures with you all this morning. And so as a church, uh, we've been journeying through the book of John. And so we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We're staying in the book of John, but we are going to jump way ahead because we've been in John chapter 3. And we're going to go to John chapter 20 because there we get the resurrection accounts. And so we want to stay in this book because what we're actually going to see is what we have in John 20 really is sort of the crescendo. It's this, it's like the pinnacle of everything that John has been trying to do, starting in chapter one, and it's this thread that runs throughout. And so what we find ourselves in as we look at John chapter 20, we're gonna be in verses 24 to 29 here this morning, um, is, man, I can't think of like a, a, a better Sunday if you're like, hey, how's the book end? In some ways, this is it. Now, there's a chapter 21, but in many ways, it's tying up some loose ends so what we have here is like what it's all driving at, all right? And so I wanna go ahead and read this now. It's part of this series that we've been doing called Come and See. It's a theme that's throughout the book of John. And so if you're here this morning as a follower of Christ, the invitation is come and see and experience all that God has for you in the gospel. If you're somebody that's wrestling with like, I don't know if I believe any of this, or somebody dragged me, me here and told me to put a pink shirt on or whatever, right? Like, um, I don't know what it is for you, but the invitation is come and see. Just come and explore. Like, what do you have to lose? Like, you owe it to yourself to just come and explore who Jesus is. And so regardless of where you are on that spectrum, just so glad that you're here. And again, for those that are joining uh, at home, thanks for inviting us into your living room, around your dining room table. We're so glad to be able to gather in multiple ways this morning. So John chapter 20, I'm going to read 24 to 29. Uh, as always, you can go to cplife.church on your phone, and the text that will be in is there. There's space for you to take notes. Any of the things that are on the slides this morning will be included there if you're wanting to try and follow along, or if you're just like, when's it going to end? It'll tell you how close we are to the end. Okay? So anyway, John chapter 20, 24 to 29, says this, but Thomas, called twin, the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were indoors again. Thomas was with them. And even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not, have not seen and yet believe. And so this is God's word for us this morning. And what we find here um, is a resurrection account, certainly, but it's a week after Resurrection Sunday. If you were to read all of John 20, you'd read the account of the women going to the tomb, and then they run, and they, they tell the disciples, and there's this foot race between John and Peter, and it's very fascinating. The Bible tells us who got there first, because God cares about winning, apparently, all right? And so um, there's that account, and then Jesus, later in the day, appears to the disciples as they're all kind of huddled in this room, but Thomas isn't there, all right? And so this is his interaction a week later with Jesus. And so now as we get into this uh, th this morning, um, I was thinking about 
how nicknames tend to sort of stick, all right? And so maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you have a nickname. Maybe it's one that you can share in public, or maybe it's one that you just kind of keep to yourself and amongst your close friends. I don't know what it is, but I know a couple friends of mine, a couple, one an acquaintance and one definitely a very good friend, um, have particular nicknames that originated sometime within the first few weeks of our freshman year of college, okay? And so it's just kind of amazing how names tend to stick. And so one of my friends, uh, one of my best friends who was in my, my wedding, eventually we became roommates, uh, innocuously one day decided to put a T-shirt on that was a bright yellow shirt and in a black lettering just had the number four. Apparently it was part of some like rec league, church league basketball, and it just said four, all right? And from here on out, he, to this day, amongst our group of friends, he's referred to as Four. His name is Eric. It seems so weird to call him Eric, right? His name is Four. Like, that's all we've ever known him as. Like, it just stuck for some reason. There was another guy on our floor who, within the first couple weeks of living in dorm life, and we were assigned to this particular floor, um, he got out one day. He was into, like, he's from Colorado originally. So he was into mountain biking. We were in Illinois, so there's, there's no mountains, but he still went out on this, this trail. And apparently as he neared the time coming back towards campus, a skunk ran out in front of him, okay, um, and sprayed him and his bike. And this man decided, well, I'll just carry my bike up the five flights of stairs. And then his room happened to be at the far end of the hallway. And he literally brought that stink with him the whole way. I mean, for the first couple weeks of the semester, everything just reeked, all right? Now, the crazy thing is, in that moment, somebody called him Pigpen, all right? Um, and then that name stuck. To this day, I was racking my brain last night. I'm like, I can picture the guy. He's Pigpen. I actually don't know his name. Like, that is just the name that stuck. And so one poor guy, one Crazy afternoon, a skunk hits him, and forever, at least in my mind, that's what he's known as, all right? Now, I just read this account of Jesus' interaction with a man named Thomas. He has a nickname that is stuck. When you hear Thomas, what do you think? Doubting. Doubting Thomas. Poor guy. 2,000 years later, it's what he's known for, right? Except John, as he's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Though there are doubts that are talked about, he never intended for him to be known as this. This is the greatest like misnomer ever. This should not be his nickname. It should be believing Thomas or declaring Thomas, but for some strange reason, he's known as doubting Thomas because he did have some doubts, and we'll look at that. But what we have here, as I told you, is this crescendo, everything that John is writing, and he tells us just a couple verses after what I just read, that he had so much material to work with. He could have shared other stories, anecdotes, teachings, miracles. He's just like, I don't lack for material. But I've put this together. And so of all the things that John could have ended, functionally ended his account about, he ends with this interaction with Thomas, And I don't think it was so that we would all know him as Doubting Thomas 2,000 years ago, but rather we would begin to understand what it looks like when people move from doubting to a confidence in the risen Lord Jesus, to move from this doubting to declaring who Jesus actually is, because that's what Thomas does here in his interaction with Jesus. He makes a declaration that summarizes, really, what this whole story has been about, all right? And so we know him as Doubting Thomas, but I wanna put before you that he should be known as something else. And so let's explore that together. Now, there are doubts, all right? And so 24 to 25 tells us this. I gave you some of the context a moment ago that 
he was not with them when Jesus came, all right, and says so, but Thomas was not with them the first time there's this interaction. Um, maybe you've heard of this, this particular phrase, all right? I think it might have originated here when we talk about FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. I think it happened here, right? Like, I think this, like, originated with Thomas. Like, oh my goodness, like, I literally, I skip out for maybe an afternoon. Maybe he was the introvert of the group, and it's just like, I gotta get away from these other 10. They're driving me nuts, right? I just gotta go get some time. I don't know what it was, but of all things, he gets back, and they're like, you're never gonna believe it. Jesus showed up. I mean, that's, that's a bit, it's probably about legit fear of missing out. I mean, that's a big deal. And so he tells them, though, hey, unless I see. He says, if I don't see the scars in his hands, his feet, if I don't see where the spear went through the side, I will never believe. And I love that that detail is given because God is in the business of just sort of blowing up our declarations and our expectations. You know, this, I will never believe. And then by the end, he makes the ultimate declaration. And maybe some of you are here this morning, and that's a story you can relate to. I will never believe Christianity. I will never believe in Jesus. This seems absurd. It's crazy. Those are my weird relatives that are, that are into that. And then you find, oh my goodness, like, I've come to believe. That's what God does. And maybe if you're somebody that's like, no, you guys are still weird, I don't believe any of this, let me put before you what we see in the life of Thomas gives us some insight about what it might look like to believe. And I think his doubting, though, though it is certainly legitimate, I don't think it's the doubting of what one might say, sort of like a hardened atheist. I mean, he's a good, God-fearing Jewish man. I don't think he said suddenly, I'm doing away with all of that. I think he's just having this moment, D.A. Carson in a book, he's a uh, scholar, wrote a book um, called Scandalous a few years ago, and he's talking about this particular, like the last week in the life of Christ and the resurrection account, and he contends, and I think this is a helpful way to frame it, there are some people that doubt, because they doubt the existence of God, atheists, there are some people that doubt, he's like, he lists a whole bunch of reasons, some might just doubt flat out because like, they didn't get enough sleep recently, and they're just like, I don't know, I don't know what I believe anymore. But Thomas is a type of doubt I put before you that is doubt that's rooted in disappointment. Here he had this belief that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was gonna restore everything, that he was gonna do this work. And then he was there, and he saw what happened to him on that Friday. I think Thomas is in this spot where it's not that he's denied everything about what he once believed, but he's just like, ah, I don't know, man. Like, what in the world is happening here? I don't know if I can believe in a God that if this is his son, like, that happened. And I can't think in some ways of a better text for us to be in this morning and that just the normal course of life, there's disappointments and discouragement and all of that. But man, it has been heightened, hasn't it, in the last 12 months? I mean, just this weightiness, there's a weariness. And I would imagine for many of us coming in here this morning, it's not that we've chucked it all and abandoned and say, I don't believe any of this and I'm an atheist and that's how I identify. But rather, we come in, yeah, I believe and I know Jesus is risen, but man, I just don't, I don't know if I feel that. Like, I've got this discouragement, this weightiness, and it's even leading to doubting whether or not God is good. Can he be trusted? And the beautiful thing that we see in the scriptures, and in particular this account, is Jesus invites that. And what we're going to see in just a moment is Jesus moving toward Thomas. And so whatever you have this morning, I don't know the particulars of what the last 12 months have been. And maybe you're like, dude, it goes way back more than just 12 months. But whatever it is, there's a God 
that wants to move toward you, is moving toward you, if you're like, I don't know if he's moving toward me, the fact that you're here this morning, gathered in this place on April 4th, 2021, in Altamont Springs, is part of God's sovereign plan for you to know that he's moving toward you. I don't know what it took to get you here, but he wants you to hear about the love that he has for you. And so I do think there's some things that make us reluctant and hesitant to believe, and this story helps us with that account. It helps us to move from doubt to belief. And so let's look at how this continues then, because as I said, it's not just a story of doubts. There's this ultimate declaration that we'll see here in verses 26 to 28. And so again, we get the account. A week later, his disciples, it tells us, were indoors again. This time, though, Thomas was with them. I wonder if he's like, I am not leaving. Like last time I left, like I missed out on something major, right? So I'm going to stay put. I'm hanging out with these guys. And even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. And on the one level, it's just a common everyday greeting that would have been heard multiple times throughout the day amongst the people back then. But because it's Jesus saying it, it's loaded with so much significance. And he knows that he's about to interact with a man named Thomas whose last week has been anything but peaceful. And the God of the universe knows that probably your last week has been anything but peaceful. And the last year has been anything but peaceful. And there's a a God that wants to come in and not in some sort of trite, pithy sort of way say, hey, peace be with you, as if we're just going to bury our head in the sand and pretend like nothing is happening that's bad or wrong in the world. But it's the God-man, Jesus, who shows up and says, because I'm here, because I'm here in flesh and blood, because I actually conquered Satan, sin, and death, that there was a bloody Roman cross, but three days later, and now one week after that, there is Jesus, our risen King and Savior. He's able to actually come in, and not just in a way where I might say, peace be with you, and it doesn't mean anything if it's just my words, but Jesus says, peace be with you, because he has secured peace. He has secured our actual, like, Ability to have a relationship restored with God our Father. Where there was once this enmity, now it's gone because Jesus took the wrath that should have been poured out on you and me, was put on him. And he's like, there's this whole new world that has burst forth in the middle of this one, and you're invited. And Thomas, I know you got questions, and I know you got discouragement, and I know you got doubt, but I'm here for you. In the same way that he would come and he would talk to Thomas, I want you to know the God of the universe is speaking to you this morning, not because of anything I'm saying, but this is what his word declares. And there's a message that he wants you to hear that peace be with you. And how do you actually get that peace? And so he said to Thomas, you know, put your finger here, look at my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And then, as I told you a moment ago, the pinnacle of this whole thing. Like, it's not about the doubt of Thomas. It's about the declaration of Thomas. He says, my Lord and my God. It's the moment. All of the book of John has been moving toward this. It's when John in chapter one introduced us to Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and the word was with God and the word was, was God. Kind of this Christmas narrative that we look at oftentimes. That story that he's been telling from the very beginning, finally, there's been hints, and there's been declarations, and there's been moments where it's like, oh, is this God himself? And here, in no uncertain terms, Thomas, not doubting Thomas, but declaring Thomas is like, this is it, my Lord and my God, that he begins to declare, you're sovereign, you're Lord, I submit my life to you, and you are not simply Man, but you are God in the flesh. 
Jesus who's standing before him. That's the story that we're part of. And so there's a couple things just to look at very quickly, all right? Um, there are, in this statement, I think there's some propositional things that we need to consider, just what's actually being stated. But if it stays there, I think we'll miss it because it also is personal. And we see that in Thomas's response. But just for a moment, the first, let's look at the propositional side of it. And so as he makes this declaration, one of the things it combats is something that's very present in our time and space that we live, inhabit, the world that you and I are all part of. There's a common view that on a day like today, even if more people are talking about Jesus, to think, yeah, he's amazing. I mean, he was kind and generous in his teachings and in all of it. But it's not enough to say that Jesus was a good teacher. The transformation that we are hoping for, I mean, just to simply put it, like teachings do not equal transformation. What I mean by that is this. If teachings were enough, why in the world does Thomas even care if he gets to see the risen Jesus? For three years, he traveled with him. For three years, he was a disciple. He saw the miracles. He heard the teachings. He's probably there on the Sermon on the Mount. He's taking copious notes. Like He's seeing all of it. If the teachings were enough, Thomas had more teachings than he knew what to do with. But apparently, this story and what we understand is John is writing, that's not enough. And so today, to say, well, Jesus is a good teacher, yes and amen to that, but that is not enough unless we actually pay attention to his teachings, which would tell us that he is God in the flesh, that he would suffer and die, and that he would rise again. If we don't actually believe in the propositional truth of who Jesus is, his life, death, and resurrection, and that something historically happened, we will just end up in this kind of nebulous realm of like, oh, he's a good teacher. Sure, he's a great teacher, the best that there ever was, but it will not lead to the transformation that you and I desire. What leads to transformation in Thomas's life is not so much the teachings, but he actually had an encounter with the risen Lord. He actually believed what had historically happened. Paul would summarize this in Romans chapter 10 as he writes to a group of people, and he writes in verses nine to 11, he says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you hear it there? I mean, it's very simple. These propositional statements. If you confess, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, if you believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Sure, you can quote things about the Beatitudes. You can quote things from the Sermon on the Mount. You can talk about the miracles of Jesus, and those are all super important. But if you and I don't actually believe that Jesus is Lord, my Lord and my God, that he rose from the dead, then we've missed it. So Paul continues, and he says, one believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. Like, as you believe, you get the righteousness of Jesus by simply confessing. And one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation, for the scriptures says everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. And I have to imagine Thomas, when Jesus shows up in that room, apparently the doors were locked, and Jesus is like, oh, I'm here, right? Um, we probably didn't say it quite like that, but anyway, like um, he shows up. I have to imagine, like if I'm Thomas, I'm immediately like, like, oh my gosh, like I've been telling these friends I won't believe, and he's making these bold declarations, and there's Jesus. And I love what is taking place in this moment. It's summarized here by Paul in the book of Romans. As he makes this confession, in that moment, 
he's getting all of Jesus' righteousness and all the shame and all the denial and all of Thomas saying like, nope, it's what I think and what I wanna believe and that sort of ultimate, like it all begins to fade away in that moment and he gets salvation. He gets the righteousness of Christ that Jesus died for his doubting. He died for Thomas's rebellion the same way they did it for you and for me. And beyond that, did you notice the language? It's not just your savior, or your Lord and your God, but my Lord and my God, that there's this very personal nature to it. And that's the key. I mean, that is it. It's like, do you personally, have you encountered the risen Jesus? Have you considered what it means to be a follower of Christ? Have you considered what it might look like in the everyday, ordinary stuff of life when we're discouraged and beat down and disillusioned and all of it to actually continue to believe that God is at work? Because if the tomb is empty, we are resurrection people and there's nothing that's gonna thwart the plans of God. And if the tomb is not empty, then we, as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, we are, we are fools, we're to be pitied. What in the world are we doing here? Let's get some more pastries and donuts or coffee and just sort of hang out because this is all nonsense. But if it happened, it changes everything and we owe our glad submission to King Jesus. And so I think there's some things, not only in this text, but just for a few moments. And if you've ever been to a Crosspoint service at Easter, like you've probably heard me talk about some of these things, but I think they're worth revisiting because there's some things that help it move from just the abstract to actually personally believing it. And even if you're here this morning, you're like, well, I already believe this. I don't need to be convinced. You have friends that may not believe what you believe. You have coworkers. You have neighbors. You have family members. I mean, one of the things back in verse 24, when Thomas misses out on the interaction, it says, verse 25, rather, that other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. The verb tense there, not to get all into the grammar, but literally it means they continually over and over and over again were telling Thomas. He kept denying, and they kept saying, hey, man, I don't know what to tell you. I know I can't change your heart, but this happened. We interacted with Jesus. And so if you're here as a follower of Christ, be encouraged that your great privilege and joy and responsibility is we get to tell people, like, we've seen Jesus. We've encountered Jesus. We've experienced the peace that only he can bring. And certainly, there's still brokenness and hurt and pain. We're not denying any of that. But we get to tell that over and over and over. God will change hearts. God will bring people from death to life. Our calling is simply to do what those 10 followers, disciples of Jesus did to Thomas. We've seen the Lord over and over and over again. And now some of you, you've been telling family members, friends, coworkers, neighbors, you've been pleading with them. You had, again, this year, you're like, come to Easter service with me. You don't have to leave your couch. You can watch online. And they're like, eh, you know, like, Your calling is still, tell them. And we'll watch what God does. And for some, you're like, I don't know if I believe this. Let me put a few things, a few considerations. The first thing is this. Consider the the witnesses. Earlier in John chapter 20, we would read that the first eyewitnesses, it's not Peter, it's not John, it's not Thomas, it's not any of the disciples. Who is it? It's a group of women that show up there the morning, Easter morning. That's hugely significant, right? Because in that time, in that place, and many maybe you are aware of this, like a woman, if she declared something, wanted to give testimony, like it wouldn't be allowed, it wouldn't be admissible in, in a court of law. 
it literally was only what the men thought that actually mattered. Obviously, that's not right, but that's what was happening there. And so again, if you're going to make this up, there is no way you would write a story to say, and these women showed up, because people were like, what? No, well, that doesn't make any sense, unless that's actually what happened. So I think that helps, and just, we bring our doubts. This, even as a, as a church, we want to encourage, like, bring your questions, bring your doubts. doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfectly you know, tied up today, a nice bow on it, and like, off you, you go. But come and ask, but also deal seriously with like, yes, you want an explanation of how did all this happen. You also have to consider how in the world did the church continue? How in the world have these things happened? Another thing to consider with the witnesses is that every last disciple of Jesus ended up ultimately dying and giving their life for the cause of Christ. This is not the A-team, the varsity. This is not the guys that had it all put together. This is Peter who would deny, Thomas who would doubt. This is people that scattered the moment Jesus got arrested. Like, peace, we're out, we're, we're, we're done with this. Like, this is a ragtag group of nobodies. And yet, one by one, over time, they ultimately, some were crucified, some were dismembered, some had their throats cut. Like, all of these things took place. Don't you think at some point, at least one of them would have been, whoa, 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 whoa. I, we made it up. We made the whole thing up, but not one of them does. What could create that level of courage and conviction unless they had encountered the risen Jesus? And then in a time, in a culture where you wouldn't even say the name of God. I mean, so what Thomas does here when he says, my God, if you ever interact with a Jehovah's Witness, they will say, well, he actually was kind of, he was using the Lord's name in vain. That is, that is the furthest thing from the truth. There's no way Thomas would have done that culturally. He's actually, no, you're God. He's making this declaration. And there's worship that's taking place. And one of the things we see in the scriptures is even Jesus' own brothers. Think about this. It's, it's, it's enough of a miracle if brothers can actually get along, let alone one of them turning and bowing down to be like, I worship you. Except that's what actually what took place. Now, how in the world does that happen? Because it would have been blasphemous to do that unless he actually was God. Like, how do we explain these things? So consider the witnesses. I would also tell you, consider the listening ear of Jesus. Did you notice? Jesus shows up, and he doesn't have to be asked by Thomas, hey, can I see your hands? Can I see the feet? Can I see the side? He already knows. What does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus has been listening to the concerns that Thomas has had over the past week. And if that's true of Thomas, it's true of everything that you carried in here this morning, that he's aware of the things that you have spoken and the things that you have not spoken, the things that maybe you're even too afraid to explore fully because you don't exactly know where it will lead. Like, Jesus is aware of that, and the posture and the disposition of Jesus is not to show up and to condemn you and to rebuke you and be like, how dare you question whether or not I rose from the dead, but rather in kindness and compassion to move toward Thomas and say, do you, you want to see? That's what's actually taking place here. In his book called Raised, Pastor Jonathan Donson writes this. He says, now put yourself in the shoes of Jesus. You spent all this time with Thomas, poured out your soul to him, prayed relentlessly for him, taught him numerous times about your impending death and resurrection, and then he doubts you. Even after the other 10 disciples have assured him of your resurrection. They've even seen you eat a fish. Do you think your patience would run a little thin? He writes, I know mine would. 
And he says, I expect Jesus to rebuke Thomas, making him an example for everyone else, telling him to accept it and get with the program. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, Jesus has room for Thomas's doubt. He even invites Thomas to place his hands on his tender crucifixion wounds to feel the truth. This scene is palpably human and curiously divine. We can identify with Thomas's response, but Jesus's tender patience is superhuman. Jesus moves, Jesus listens. And what was true for Thomas is true of you this morning. And so bring your doubts, whether as a follower of Christ or not yet a follower of Christ, bring your doubts, bring your confusion. So consider the witnesses, consider the listening ear of Jesus. I put before you, consider the wounds of Jesus. As Jesus shows it to him, one of the things that have been, one of the stories, one of the, the elements of the story that's being communicated over and over again is what we celebrated on Good Friday. When Thomas sees Jesus standing there, he is starting to come to the realization that Jesus was wounded by Thomas and Jesus was wounded for Thomas. And Jesus was wounded by me and Jesus was wounded for me. And Jesus was wounded by you and he was wounded for you. It means it wasn't just the people 2,000 years ago and the Roman soldiers that nailed them to that Roman cross and executed him and all of that. I killed Jesus. I cried out for his death. You cried out for his death. Like we put him on that cross. And so what is happening here objectively for Thomas as he sees it, he's realizing those wounds, I caused those wounds. Like I was part of driving those nails through his hands and his feet and the spear going through his side and Jesus struggling to, to breathe, the blood pouring out, like all of it. In that moment, was he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's cut off so that you and I could be brought in. The wrath of God is being poured out on Jesus at that moment, so it doesn't have to be poured out on you. And what is beginning to happen for Thomas is he's being melted by the wounds of Jesus. He's saying, I did this. It was my fault. It's by my sin and rebellion and treason. But Jesus also wounded for me that he willingly went to the cross. It tells us for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame. The joy was bringing you into the family. The joy was being able to say, he went to the cross looking to the day when you would confess, when you would believe, and he could say, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you. There's nothing that's gonna separate you from my love. There's no more condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Like That's the story that he has in mind, and Thomas is considering this, and it's all coming home for him. Tim Keller, wouldn't be a sermon without me quoting Tim Keller, so here we go. Um, Tim Keller says this, there's no God, no other religion that would dare to say there's a God with wounds. But unless you have a God with wounds, not just a teacher with wounds, not just a God without wounds, and not just a God, not just a man, but a God-man, Unless you get that doctrine together, it will never blast through. And I'm not talking about doctrinally, I'm talking about personally, psychologically, and spiritually. It's the only thing that breaks through. So do you see it? Thomas is beginning to see in that moment. He was wounded by me, but he was wounded for me, that he died in my place. And whatever doubts, and disappointments and disillusion, all of it that he's carrying, they're beginning to melt away. So the last thing to consider, I think, is this. 
Thomas had his conditions, right? I won't believe, I'll never. And I think what this is showing us, because we all have our conditions. God, I'll do this if you do this. Or God, I'll believe if this. It's to consider your conditions. And then when you encounter the risen Jesus, to just get rid of them, like to drop your conditions, to let them go. Because if Jesus really rose from the dead, then there's nothing that he can't ask of you. The only response is a glad surrender. You're my Lord. Like you rose from the dead. Like it doesn't matter. Me coming with my conditions, this or that, is me trying to put myself on the throne. And Jesus is like, get off of that spot. The only way you're gonna find joy is if Jesus is on the throne and we are in glad submission to him. He's our savior. He's our Lord. He's my God. Until you realize that the God-man Jesus died in your place and rose again. Like, as that happens, the conditions, your heart begins to melt, the conditions just fall by the wayside. And where this leads to then, as we close, is what I put before you is this decision. Some, it might be a decision for the first time, but I think it's an ongoing call in the life of the Christian as well. Like, will we trust? And what I love is that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he's interacting in this room with Thomas, and he's speaking and declaring things about you and me a couple thousand years later. Like he's peering out into the future and he knows what is going to happen with the people that will become followers of him. And he says these words. So know this, like a week after the resurrection, like Jesus not only had you in mind when he went to the cross, he's still continuing to think about you. He's still moving towards you. He still cares deeply. He's still listening. And he says this, he pronounces this blessing. He says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. How amazing is that? He's literally pronouncing a blessing in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of all that this craziness that, that life brings. He's saying, blessed are those. If you've trusted in the finished work of Christ, Jesus sees you and says, yeah, Thomas, I'm so glad that, that you've believed. But he saw him face to face. I've not seen the risen Lord Jesus face to face. You have not seen him. If you have, let's talk afterwards. I don't want to hear more. But right, like we have not seen him. And yet he tells us, but there's the witnesses. There's the testimony. There's the scriptures. There's all of this that are bearing witness to the reality. Are we considering those things and then realizing as we have been granted faith, blessed are those who've come to believe. And so... As we conclude this, as we consider the implications of Easter, it's this ongoing invitation, it's this ongoing pursuit of belief. Like, will you trust Jesus in who he is? Will you trust him with the circumstances of your life? Will you trust him in the midst of the disappointment? Will you trust him in the things that are incredibly discouraging? Will you see the God-man Jesus when you doubt, oh, God's indifferent, God doesn't care? Will you see the God-man Jesus laid out on a cross. Would you, you have to look no further than the cross of Christ to realize his love for you. And if you doubt his power, would you consider the empty tomb and know that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he had conquered Satan, sin, and death? Would you consider that he ascended and that right now he's ruling and reigning and one day he's gonna split the sky and he's gonna come back and everything is gonna be set right. There's gonna be no more tears. There's gonna be no more pain. There's gonna be no more global pandemics. There's gonna be no more misunderstanding. Everything that is broken physically, psychologically, socially, spiritually, all of it is going to be healed. Like that's the story that we're part of. 
And so bring your doubts, bring your pain, offer it up, lament, cry out, all of that. But do it from a posture of, I believe, like, Jesus, you are the risen Lord. And because he's risen, we actually can bring those things. So in a time of response, I'm going to pray for us. Um, I would encourage you to take some time to reflect. Holy Spirit might be leading you in particular ways to repent. Maybe for some of you, you need to receive God's grace for the first time. Whether you're here in person or you're watching online, Seriously, like go to the cplife.church, scroll down after you click on the message notes, scroll down, there's a prayer that's there, a prayer of salvation. There's nothing magical about the words that are written there, but in an honest moment to pray that, if like, how do I actually accept the grace of God? Like, do that, come talk with me or one of the other staff or anybody, like after the, the service. But there's this invitation to receive, and it's an ongoing invitation to continue to receive the grace of God, and then we're gonna to rejoice together. And the way that we're gonna rejoice is through singing songs. We're gonna rejoice through communion. And so the worship team's gonna come up and I wanna invite you, while they're singing this next song and leading us in worship, when you're ready, if you're a follower of Christ, come to either side of the stage and grab one of the, the, the communion elements and bring it back to your seat. If you're at home, you can gather elements now. And then after this song concludes, I'll come back up and invite us to participate in this meal together where we might celebrate what Jesus has accomplished and be nourished by this means of God's grace. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace. We thank you that the tomb is empty. We thank you that because of your grace, we are resurrection people. And so God, I pray that as we reflect on these things, I pray that you would, in your kindness, that you would lead us in repentance, that you guide us toward that, that we would confess our sins, that we would confess maybe all the conditions we're carrying. And may we, maybe for the first time, or in an ongoing sense, receive your grace um, to know that there's nothing that we can do to get us to, to, for, to get you to, to love us more. And there's nothing we have to earn. There's nothing we have to games we have to play, nothing to pretend about. So Jesus, thank you for making a way. Thank you for your work and your life, death, and resurrection. And God, as we continue to worship you now through song and through this meal, I pray, God, that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience a deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.